Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. Well, so I tell Zach uh, the scripture and then he picks a scripture reader. I forgot to tell him to tell the scripture reader that they didn't have to read all the names this week, but it's too late. So I just let her go. She did a great job, didn't she? Yeah. Don't you wish they were all just like, you know, at the end it says like Joshua. It's like, <laughs> why can't they all be like that? Ezra 10, 16 through 44 is where we are. I'm guessing none of you have ever meditated on this uh, piece of scripture, as beautiful as it is with this list of names. But believe it or not, we actually see a beautiful, beautiful gospel foreshadowing in this text. Uh, as we come to the end of Ezra, we see uh, this, this theology or this doctrine that we would call justification, which is a big church word. That means how are we justified before God? How are we made right before God? As we stand before God, what makes us not enemies of God, but children of God? How could we possibly be justified before God? And the truth is, is the only way we're justified before God is through a representation of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And that's exactly what we see here is the people are atoning for their sins. They're doing it not themselves, but they're doing it through representation. And so we're going to see something beautiful about the gospel in this text, if you'll stick with me. Now, uh, as you're turning in the Bibles there, if you have your Bible or you're getting your phone uh, fired up, I just have a couple quick things. Number one, uh, I was supposed to say this morning that if you're going to kids camp as a sponsor, there's a meeting on Tuesday night in Woodward at Lincoln Avenue at what? time? 6.30. Uh, that was an announcement for my wife, so I had to make sure I got that in at the beginning. Uh, because what she tells me to announce, I do it. Uh, if you tell me, I don't do it. But uh, no, I'm just kidding. I do it for you guys. Uh, and then the second thing is, this is my last uh, sermon of, of my kind of preaching year. I'll take like a five-week uh, break from the pulpit after this. Uh, it's something that we've always done here at Ascent, and I'm just grateful that you guys allow me to do that. Uh, what it does is it frees up about 15 hours that I normally use on sermon prep, 15 to 20, sometimes 25. Uh, and uh, it gives me that time back to do some more admin stuff and some planning stuff. and some. I've got a whole list of things that I'd like to do, but I don't have time to do it. So it gives me time to do that. Uh, And it also gives me a chance to have a little bit of a break and to worship like you guys do every Sabbath Sunday with my wife without the pressure of having to get up here and having something to say. So I really appreciate that. And I'm excited because we've got five of our own preaching sermons over the next few weeks. So don't miss it. Be here to encourage them. Now, I'm going to pray for us and then we will jump into this talk on justification. Father God, thank you so much that you have justified us. You've justified us through the son, Jesus, through his perfect life, his death and his resurrection and ascension. Lord, I pray that as we hear these truths today, they wouldn't just be truths that would fill our minds with more knowledge, but God, that they would fill our hearts. And that as we walk out of this place, living as a justified person, it would change everything about our lives. Because I truly believe that if we understand this doctrine, if this doctrine seeps into our hearts, then it will make us worshipers in all of life. It will establish for us our worth before you. It will give us hope for our future. It will give us courage that we need to face all of life, including death. And it will make us fearless, fearless ambassadors for your name. So, God, I pray that as I preach on this, it wouldn't just be something that... We hear once and we maybe remember every other Sunday, but it'd be something that we preach to ourselves every single day because we need it every single day. God, we love you and we praise you. And I personally pray that anything that I say that is untrue would be wiped away. And anything that I say that is true would be highlighted in the minds of my listeners. God, I am a sinful man and I need your help to be able to preach this perfect and holy word. And it is in your name that I pray. Amen. 
I, uh, from time to time, will share with you guys uh, church signs that I like. Uh, I, I just I love a good church sign outside of an old church. We've got a church sign here, uh, but the, it's the Spanish churches, so I don't get to put funny things on there. It probably they probably wouldn't want me to put funny things on there anyways. It probably wouldn't be good for our church family. But I just love a good sign, you know. Like I, I love the church who put on there to whoever stole our AC system, keep it because you're going to need it where you're going. <laughs> That's good, you know. Uh, or the churches who don't understand grammar and uh, they don't put commas or periods where they should be. Uh, like the church I saw who put, you want to know what hell is like? Come listen to our preacher. She's like, man, isn't that bad? <laughs> it's funny. But uh, I, I saw something on the news the other day and it was actually a lawyer billboard that I thought was, was kind of funny. Uh, you know, lawyer, lawyer billboards are usually pretty awesome anyways because it's always like a, a guy and he's like trying to look really tough and he's like, I'll fight for you. Did they smash your car? I'll smash them. You know, <laughs> it's like that's a lawyer commercial tends to be. And uh, there is this uh, lawyer who had a billboard who said, uh, you know, it was basically saying call him, but it, uh, in big letters it, it said, just because you did it doesn't mean you're guilty. <laughs> it's like, oh, really? Is that how it is? You know, but that is actually what you want from a defense attorney. You want him to represent you. You don't want him to care about whether you did it or not. You want him to go to court and to build a case so that even if you did it, you have the status of innocent. Because really, that's all that matters. It, it, it matters what the judge says at the end of, of the case. You know, if he says that you are innocent, then what does that mean? That means you get to be an innocent man or an innocent woman, even though you did it. Ask O.J. Simpson about that. You know? or, or ask any kind of rich politician or powerful person or somebody who you feel like, you know, because of their privilege, they kind of got off. It doesn't matter whether or not you think they did it. What matters is, is when the verdict was given, the verdict was an innocent verdict. And as I thought about that billboard, it's actually really true in the courtroom of God that our only hope is that although we did it, there would be a way in which we were not counted guilty. And much like we go to a representative to build our case so that we can get a, a verdict of innocent in a real courtroom, when it comes to the courtroom of God, we need a representative who will fight for us, who will advocate for us and give us that verdict of innocent despite the things that we have done and the sins that we have committed. It's our only hope. There is not enough good works you can do to make up for the bad that you have done. Because in James chapter 2, it says, If you failed at one point in the law of God, you failed at all the law of God. And you think, well, there's 613 commands. How could somebody possibly memorize them all? And Jesus says, hey, I'll simplify it for you. You just got to do two things. You got to love God with all that you are and love people like yourself. And we can't even accomplish those two things, can we, friends? Now, I bet on the way here, whether it be in your mind or in your actions, you failed at one of those two things. And so we are guilty in the courtroom of God. But the Bible gives us really good news. In 1 John 2, 1, it says this, My little children... I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and you will sin, you will miss the mark of what God has set for you. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We have a representative. We have an advocate. And this is exactly what we see in this text as it is foreshadowed. The people have representatives. Uh, when they have sinned, they come together and they convene. And there's about 30,000 people. They couldn't possibly talk to each of the 30,000 people. So what they do is they say, Ezra, select these heads of these families and they will represent the entire assembly for us on our behalf. And that's what we see in verses 18 and 19. It says the following were found. This is Ezra chapter 10. The following were found to have married foreign women from the descendants of the priests, from the descendants of Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, and his brothers, Messiah, Eliziar, Jerob, and Gedaliah. 
uh, and verse, uh, I, actually I got ahead of myself, verse 16, the exiles did what had been proposed. The priests selected men who were family heads, all identified by name to do what? To represent their ancestral families. So they have representation. And the first thing these representatives do is actually the way that Jesus represents us. There's two ways that we see in this text they represent. And they're the same two ways that Jesus represents us. The first way is that they make atonement for those that they represent. And now here's where I got ahead of myself. Verse 18, which I just read, is uh, the family of the high priest. So it starts at the very top. But look at what they did in verse 19. It says, they pledged to send their wives away. And being guilty, they offered a ram from the flock for their guilt. And the New Testament tells us that this is what the priests did, that they would take an animal and they would atone for the sins of not only themselves, but of the people by slaughtering this innocent animal. The wages for sin is death. So because they had sinned, something had to die. And what they would do is the priest would bring this ram and he would lay his hands on it. And he would confess sins for hours at times sometimes because he would say every single sin that he had committed. And then he'd say every single sin that the assembly had committed. And by having his hands on it, it was an act of transferring the sin or imputing the sin, imputing the guilty status off of the people and onto this animal. And then they would slaughter the animal. And you might say, well, that's kind of cruel, isn't it, Blake? You know, like that's not PETA approved. And the, the truth is, is that it's supposed to be cruel. There are some pastors who will try to lighten this, who will try to take away from this. And, and I think that's pretty sad because what God wants us to do is to be disturbed. This is supposed to be disturbing to us. Yes, of course it is cruel. But what should disturb us is not the fact that an animal died. But what should disturb us is the fact that we have sinned against a holy and just God. So severely that something had to die. Now, some of you might say, well, isn't God merciful and graceful? And I would say, yes, he absolutely is. And you'd say, well, then why can't God just overlook the offenses? You know, I'm a pretty good person and I understand why he might not overlook the sins of a pedophile or overlook the sins of Hitler or Stalin. But why can't he overlook the sins of a pretty decent person? And I understand that. And I used to think the same thing. You know, why can't he just overlook it? But really, if that's your take, then there's three things you don't really understand about the Bible. Uh, there, there's three things you don't understand about God. Uh, I'm going to give you those three things, and it's going to seem pretty intense here for a minute. But to get to the good news, I have to first go through the bad news. Because the bad news is real, and I'm a bad pastor if I don't tell you the bad news. Uh, and my goal over the next few minutes is to get you off of yourself and get a bigger view of who God is. And this is my last sermon for a while, and so I'm going to try to make as many people mad as possible before I take my summer break. I'm leaving it all on the line today, so if you guys come back next week, you really love Jesus. The first thing people don't understand when they say, why can't God just overlook sin? Why does there need to be atonement at all? Is number one, you don't understand the justice of God. You don't understand that God being just, God making things right and fair is a part of his very character. He cannot not be just. It's all over the Bible when it talks about God's characteristics that he is a just God. He will make it fair. He says, do not show favoritism to the rich. And he also says, do not show favoritism to the poor. I'm not interested in showing favoritism to anybody. I'm interested in things being fair, things being done rightly. Here's just a few examples. Isaiah 61, 8 says, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and injustice. I will faithfully reward my people and make a permanent covenant with them. Isaiah 51, 4. Pay attention to me, my people, and listen to me, my nation, for instruction will come from me and my justice for a light to the nations. 
Or Deuteronomy 32, 3-4. For I will proclaim the Lord's name, declare the greatness of our God, the rock. His work is perfect. All, not some, but all His ways are just. A faithful God without bias, and He is righteous and true. God is just. It's a part of His very character. Uh, Francis Schaeffer is an old pastor, and he wrote a book called The God Who Is There. It's one of the most famous uh, Christian books of all time, The God Who Is There. And his whole idea in this book was we don't get to make up who God is. It doesn't matter whether or not we like him or not. He is just the God who is there. You respond to him based upon him being there. It's a bit like if your house was on fire, you might not like the fact that your house is on fire. But just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's not on fire. If you just sit there and say, you know what, I don't like this, so I don't think my house is really on fire. Guess what happens to you? You burn up and you die. It doesn't matter what you want. It doesn't even matter why it happened. What matters is that your house is on fire and you better had move. Oh, the same is true of God. It doesn't matter what you and your enlightened mind think of God. God is God. It's who He is. You don't adjust God for the times. You adjust to God. We should not adjust God to culture. Culture should adjust to God. Because He is who He is. I, uh, I, I like what this lady named Virginia Owens says. Uh, she's... Uh, <laughs> She's fiery. She says it in a way that I probably couldn't say. You think, well, Blake, what was that? That was pretty fiery what you just did. Uh, And and I get that. Uh, But Virginia Owens takes it to the next level. She says, let us get this one thing straight. God can do anything he damn well pleases, including damn well. And if if it pleases him to damn, then it is done. De facto well. God's activity is what it is. There isn't anything else. Without it, there would be no being, including human beings. Presuming to judge the creator of everything that is. You would not even exist without the God of this universe giving you air in your lungs. And here you are as a small human thinking you can tell God what is right and what is wrong. And this is something that I get so tired of. And and it's tired of in myself because I do this as well. But I'll come to God and I want to be like Thomas Jefferson cutting out parts of the Bible that I don't agree with. Or parts of the Bible that I find archaic. Parts of the Bible that don't maybe line up with what I think the sexual ethic ought to be. Or what I think the money ethic ought to be. The Bible sometimes tells me things I don't like to hear. And the Bible tells me in my job I have to preach those things to people who really don't want to hear them said. But at the end of the day, it's not my job to tell God who He is. It's my job to realize who God is and to adjust my life in light of that. Some of us need a little bit of humility as we stand before the God of this universe. There's a great example in the book of Job. Job, for the entire book, whines and cries to his friends about how unjust God is to him. And how if he gets to speak to God, he's going to say this and he's going to say this. Well, at the end of the book, he is in the throne room of God. And guess what Job says? Nothing. He opens his mouth like a fool and he says, I've said too much by saying anything at all. This is what happens when we are confronted with who God is. In the throne room of God, you need to be sure, friends, that the only thing you will be trying to do is keep your face from melting off of its skull. God is holy, holy, holy. He is just. So when you understand that, you begin to understand why it is ridiculous to think that God would let people off the hook. Number two is, number one was you don't understand the justice of God. Number two would be you don't understand the sinfulness of man. You don't understand the sinfulness of yourself. Now, again, you you might think I'm a pretty decent person. And by that, you mean the outcomes of your life haven't been as bad as other people. You haven't murdered anybody 
hopefully, uh, you, you know, you haven't done some of these terrible, evil things. You know, you didn't live your life in drugs and, and you weren't, you know, a terrible uh, weight on your family. Whatever it is that you think uh, makes you a, a pretty decent person. But Charles Spurgeon has a great illustration on this. He's my, he's my favorite preacher, Charles Spurgeon, 1800s. And his illustration is that of an acorn. He says, in every acorn is a wood, uh, is an ocean of wood. And every acorn is an ocean of wood. And what he means by that is an acorn is a seed. And when that acorn seed grows up, what does it grow up into? It grows up into an oak tree. And on that oak tree is hundreds of different acorns. And in each of those acorns is hundreds of more acorn trees with more acorns on those acorn trees. So in that one acorn, although it looks small, it has the potential to be an ocean of wood. And he says, this is how our hearts are as humans. And just because your acorn fell on dry ground and didn't sprout open, just because you didn't have the conditions to become uh, Hitler doesn't mean that you wouldn't have if you weren't in the same position he was in. That anger in your heart might lead you to murder if you have a different opportunity to do it. The greedy people that you look down upon might be you if you had as much money and power as they had. You, You might look at Hugh Hefner and say, what a lustful, disgusting man he is. But if you are more desirable and rich yourself, you might be in the exact same situation as he was. The point is not the outcome. The point is what is inside of us. And when God judges us, he judges us not based upon the outside of the bowl, which we try to clean up and show everybody. But he judges us based upon what's inside of us. Now, this is something that is very hard to tell people. In fact, John Owen, another old dead preacher, tells us that people cannot be told they are sinners. They must be shown it. In other words, I can tell you you are a sinner all I want, but if you are hardened towards it, if you arrogantly believe you're not that bad, there is nothing I can do to help you. In fact, the Bible would say, beware if this is you, because you are the furthest away from the kingdom. The person who thinks I'm a pretty decent person overall, that I deserve to stand before God and have an innocent uh, verdict, is the kind of person that Jesus says is hardened and cannot hear the message of the gospel. This is why Jesus, when he's talking to the Pharisees, he says, look, guys, I didn't come for the well. I came for the sick. In other words, I didn't come for those who already think they've got it all figured out. I came for those who know they need my help. Uh, There's an example of this in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. It says two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. I'm in church every single week. I even take notes when the preacher preaches. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You ought to be very careful if you're the type of person who doesn't understand the sin that you are capable of in different situations. If you're the kind of person who thinks you are better than other people, that you, are, you don't need as much grace maybe as the next guy or the next girl, you are in a very, very dangerous position. And there's nothing I can do to convince you of that. My prayer for you is that God would show you that in your life. Number three. So number one was you don't understand the justice of God. You don't understand the sinfulness of man. And number three, you don't understand that God's goodness is tied to his justice. In other words, God is not just. If God is not just, rather, then God is not good. The two go together. And I think we would all understand this if you and I were in a court. 
and somebody had stolen money from you. Uh, I found out uh, a while back that somebody stole my identity. They're using my social security and, and they're getting a whole bunch of fraudulent things. And, uh, and, and that's quite a feeling. Uh, to, you, know, you feel really violated when somebody does that to you. And uh, what they did was you know, they destroyed my, my credit score uh, because they opened like 18 different credit cards and obviously didn't pay for any of them. And it's in my name. And in fact, like, I'm still trying to figure out how do I get those things off because it's on the account. It, it says that they did this thing. And as I look at it, I think that's not just. That's not right. I want somebody to fix it. I don't want it to stay there. I don't want a judge to be merciful and let that stay on my credit score. You know, oh, it's okay. Uh, well, let's just forgive this guy who did this thing to Blake and let him off the hook. No, that's not good. That's a bad judge. And the same is true for you. If you were in court and somebody stole uh, $10,000 from you and the judge got up and said, you know what? I'm feeling good today. I'm feeling merciful. I'm feeling graceful today. I'm going to let this guy off the hook. You would say, wait a minute. I need my $10,000. You know, you are not a good judge. You are a corrupt judge. And yet we stand before God and we want him to let people off the hook. Well, if he did that and he could do that, he would be merciful and he'd be graceful, but he would not be just and he would not be good. He'd be corrupt. And we do not want a corrupt God. We want a just God. Now, if you rightly understand what I am saying, if, you, if, you, if you're following along with me, what your new question should be is not why can't God just overlook this? The new question would be, how could a ram possibly be enough of a sacrifice? How could an animal possibly make up for all the sin of humanity and of the assembly? And the truth of the matter is, is that it is not enough. Hebrews 10.4 says this, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So then the question we ask is, why do we do it? Why did they do it? Why did they sacrifice animals if it wasn't going to take away the sin? And the answer was because it was pointing forward to the one thing that could take away sin. That there would be a perfect and innocent sacrifice that would come. And that perfect and innocent sacrifice was Jesus Christ himself. He was different from the high priest. The high priest had sins of his own and he would bring the animal in and he would lay his own sins on the animal and they would sacrifice the animal. Jesus is the high priest, our connection to God, but he doesn't come with a sacrifice. He is the sacrifice, the innocent lamb of God. 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says, My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And then look at what verse 2 says. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the whole world. Friends, as we look at the cross of Jesus, what we see is not God's mercy as much as we see God's justice. God didn't let us off the hook. No, God was just in his rulings. Look at what 1 John 1.9 says. This surprised me this week as I read it. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you see what it says he is? He is faithful and he is righteous. I would expect it to say he is merciful and he is gracious. It says he is faithful and he is righteous. He's just doing what a judge is supposed to do because the penalty has been paid. Justice has been made. Atonement is made in full. So God is not letting us off the hook. God is saying Jesus has paid the penalty you were supposed to pay. And this is where Jesus is better than any representative you might hire as a lawyer. Because your lawyer will fight for you for the whole case. But at the end of the day, if the judge says you are guilty, there is not one lawyer who will say, you know what, I'll go to prison for him. No, that's the end of our relationship. I tried the best I could, but you're going to prison for life, not me. And Jesus stands up and you might think he's a terrible representative because he stands before the judge and he says, my client is completely guilty. Like, you know, we're not even going to try to build a case against this. He did it. He did it more than what you probably think he did. He is evil. 
And yet, I want to impute my status of innocence to him, and I will take his status of guilt. Now, some people would say uh, that God is kind of a bad guy in this situation, which is a a really bad understanding. Uh, They'll say things like, this is divine child abuse, where God sent his son Jesus to pay for the penalty of the sins for all the people, as if Jesus didn't really want to do it. But you've got to remember that the father-son spirit is really a metaphor for our tiny little human brains to understand. It's not the same as the father and son relationships that we have. Not exactly. Uh, Because the son and the father are one. They are both God. They're three distinct beings, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they are one. There is only one God. There are not three gods. There is one God. Jesus is God in the flesh. So on the cross, we do not see God pouring his wrath out on his poor little son. We really see God pouring his wrath out on God so that the people he loves might have a way out of that wrath. It's an act of great love, friends. Uh, Charles Spurgeon has another illustration about seeing your worst enemy. And the enemy is burning in a house and you run over and you see him and he's out the window and, and you say, I'm coming to help you. And your enemy, while he's burning, begins to shout insults at you They're like, no, I would rather die than be saved by you. Most of us would say, OK, well, then die. I didn't like you anyways. But let's say you, you walk into the house, Spurgeon says, and you go up to the room and you find him and you're trying to help him out. And he begins to fight you. He begins to punch you. He begins to try to roll you into the fire. At this point, surely most of us would walk out of the room. And yet that's not what Christ does. We do that and worse to him. And yet he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. See, to understand the great act of love on the cross, you have to understand those three things I told you earlier. So it might have sound deep and dark because it is. But what do we see out of that darkness? We see the light of love shines really, really brightly. So just as the representatives make atonement, Jesus, as our representative, makes atonement for us. Now, the second thing that Jesus does for us is that Jesus, as our representative, covers our shame. He covers our shame. Now, in verses 18 through 44, we see this long list of 113 names. Now, it only feels like a long list to us, but there was more than 30,000 people. And it says most of the men had committed this sin. Uh, So thankfully for Kim May's sake, there's only 113 of those 30,000 people listed. Why? Well, because these are the leaders. These are the ones who are representing all of the sin in the community. Now, for you and I... This list of names might be boring or it might be like, you know, what's the point of this? But can you imagine how humiliating it would be to the people whose names are listed? How shameful it would be Uh, for all of eternity. They are in the best selling book of all time and their part in the best selling book of all time is their sins. It'd be like if we had a a book today of the sins in America and uh, you struggle with drinking. And as a representation of all the people who drink in the Bible, it said, here is the drunkard, Blake Farley. You know, I I would be ashamed of that. I I would say, well, there was millions of other people who drank. No, no, but Blake, you're the representative for all the people for all eternity. Now, for all of us, this would be humiliating. In fact, most people would rather die than be ashamed. Uh, There's a reason why we all wear clothes. We wear clothes for each other, right? Like you wouldn't want to see me without clothes. But I also wear them for myself to cover my shame. I, I do not want to be ashamed. It's why we cover those sins in our minds and in our hearts that we do not want anybody to know. It's why we have private browsing on our phones and doors on our houses. Because there's some things that we want to hide because they would be shameful if they came out. There's thoughts in our minds that would be shameful if people knew them. And yet here we have these leaders of the community exposed at their worst moment. And why were they shamed? To cover the whole community. Their names were listed so that the other names did not have to be listed. This is a beautiful illustration of what Jesus comes. 
When Jesus comes, he comes as the son of God, deserving of all things in the world. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And he comes as a poor carpenter and he is humiliated. He is shamed so that we would not be shamed. Just to give you a little example of this shame, Luke chapter 23, verse 35 through 39. This is the son of God, the one who created everything, the one who knit these people together in their mother's wombs. And this is what they're doing to him. Verse 35, as he's hanging on the cross, the people stood watching and even the leaders were scoffing. Uh, The Romans would crucify people in very public places to make uh, an illustration to all the people that you ought not go against the Roman Empire. They would strip them naked, they would beat them, they would flog them, and they'd put them in like the parking lot of Walmart. So as you walked in, you'd see people hanging. And as you walked by these hanging people, you would shout insults at them. And here's the one who created the universe, and he is hanging naked and beaten, and people who he created, people who he sustains, are shouting insults at him with air that he put in their lungs. It says, and this is what they were scoffing. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself. If this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Now, at this point, I am definitely killing these people. (laughs) If I have the power of God and they say, save himself, he's the chosen one of God. I'm I'm about to show you the power of God that I have. That's not what Jesus does. He takes the shame. He bears the shame that you and I rightfully deserved to pay. Verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine, which is vinegar. And you might think, well, that's kind of an act of kindness that they would give him something to drink because in the other gospels, we know he cries out, I thirst. But as we study the Romans, we find out that the Romans would carry these sponges that they would use for toilet paper on the battlefield. And what they gave Jesus was that they would take this sponge that was toilet paper and they put it on a stick and they dipped it in vinegar and they put it up and said, here, drink this. Can you imagine the shame of this? The God of this universe hanging, drinking vinegar off of toilet paper. Verse 37 and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And they continue to mock him by nailing this on top of the cross. An inscription was above him. This is the king of Jews. Verse 39, then one of the criminals hanging there. One of the criminals. One of the lowlifes. There began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself. Friends, this is shame we cannot even imagine. In those verses alone, we get some of the shame, but we cannot even fully comprehend the shame that the God of this universe underwent when He took on flesh and He walked amongst us and we killed Him. And why did He undergo this shame? Well, Romans chapter 10, 11 tells us so that in the throne room of God at the end, for Scripture says everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. When you stand before God one day and you will stand before God one day, friends, the reason why God will give you the innocent verdict is nothing to do with what you did or did not do. I want to make sure you understand that it is nothing, nothing, not one iota to do with what you did or did not do. As you stand before God and you make your case for all the good things you did, the Bible tells us those are like filthy rags to God. On my best day, when I love my wife, I do my quiet time, I pray. It's a filthy rag to God as far as righteousness goes. My only hope is that when I stand before God, is that God will not look at me, but He will look at the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this is what makes Jesus so much better than even the representatives that we see here in Ezra. Because verse 44 tells us, All of these, all of these had married foreign women and some wives had given birth to children. See, these people represented the people and they covered their shame, but they could not clothe them with righteousness. You know why? Because they were sinners themselves. 
But Jesus comes and he is perfectly innocent. He lived the life you could not live. He never once disobeyed God's laws and God's commands. And then at the end of it all on the cross, he has imputed the status of sinner. Look at what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. He, being God, made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It's what theologians call the great exchange. And it's what ought to make us sing loudly every single week we gather. The great exchange is you are a sinner and you deserve to pay the penalty for God. But God so loved the world that He sent His advocate, He sent His representative to come and to pay the penalty that we deserve to pay so that we could have the righteousness that only He deserved. There will be nobody in heaven in the new kingdom boasting about what they deserve because they are there. We will be boasting in the name of Jesus alone because he is our only hope. It's only because we are clothed in his righteousness that we stand before God as children of God and not enemies of God. Friends, this is something that you can watch me get excited about. But it is something that you have to experience yourself to understand. It is something that God has to open your eyes to. I wish I could do it for you, but I cannot. But if he does, and when he does, this theology, this doctrine changes everything about everything in our lives. It's not just something about, you know, when I die, I'm counted innocent, so I get to go to heaven for all eternity. No, when you really believe and you really live like you believe, That you are God's child and that status cannot be revoked because it is what God did for you through Jesus and nothing of your own. It changes the way you love your wife. It changes the way you love your husband. It changes the way you handle when people criticize you. It changes the way you try to perform to get people to like you. You don't have to do that anymore. You know why? Because you're justified by God. It changes the way you view your future. You become like the Apostle Paul, unafraid of death. Apostle Paul says, kill me. You kill me, it's better for me. I'll be with God. And if you don't kill me, I'm going to live my life for God anyways. Because the, the, the power of this universe, the spirit of this universe is for me. And he's not for me because of me. He's for me because of what Jesus did for me. Which means it cannot be taken away. Josh, if you want to go ahead and come up. I'm, I'm giving you guys all I got before I take this break. I, I, I'm not going to need my throat next week anyways. But this is really good news. This is really, really good news. And I just want to give us a few points of application with the remaining time that I have uh, really quickly. Number one, some of you, you, you need to be baptized. Uh, how do we respond to this? How do, how do I make Jesus my representative? You don't make Jesus anything. He already did it for you. What you do is you believe it and you begin to live like you believe it. And the way we show the world that we believe it and we're excited about it is through baptism. That's what baptism is. When we go under the water, we say, I'm no longer representing myself before God. That me is dead with Christ. And I rise up and I'm in Christ. Uh, You see, when I do my taxes every year, uh, Josh does taxes for people. I use TurboTax because I'm cheap. And I am. But at the end of the TurboTax deal, uh, it always asks me, do you want audit protection? And I pay a little extra for that because that scares me. You know, like I try to overpay taxes. I don't want to mess with the IRS, uh, which is probably why I need to hire Josh. But I click on their audit protection because they promise they will represent me. But what they're very clear about is if these people come to you and they begin to audit you, you have to send the information to us directly. You cannot speak for yourself. We are Blake Farley if this happens. So if the IRS were to audit me, what I'm supposed to do is point them to TurboTax to protect me. They talk on my behalf. The same is true for us when we're baptized in Christ. 
It is no longer I that live, but Christ in me. It is no longer I that stand before God, but Christ in me. He is my representative. So when the accusers of this world, when the accuser himself, Satan, comes and begins to accuse you, how could you be loved by God? How could you be a child of God? You know what you do? You point him to your representative. (laughs) You say, you do not speak to me. You speak to my representative. Because it is no longer I that live, but it is Christ that lives in me. And if you believe that for the first time, then you need to be baptized. You need to be baptized quickly. You put it on your connect card and I'll baptize you next week because you need to show the world that you no longer live for yourself, but Christ lives in you. The second thing is for those of us that are prideful or arrogant, when we hear this doctrine, it should shatter that pride. You want to know how evil you are, what the acorn could turn into possibly? All you have to do is look at the cross of Jesus. That is what sin in its most ugly form looks like. Killing the God of this universe, stripping him bare and beating him naked. If you want to know how much you need Jesus, you look to the cross and that shatters our pride. But on the other side of that, it also, this is the third thing, it builds our sense of worth. The world will sometimes tell us we are worthless. We are unlovable. And if you ever want to know what you are worth, you need to look no further than the cross. Because ultimately what something is worth is what somebody is willing to pay for that thing. Uh, I, I read last week that somebody bought a book that George Washington had from his personal library. It had his writing in it. And uh, they sold this book for $9 million. Now, if anybody else owned that book, it probably would be in a trash can. But because George Washington owned it, it was worth $9 million. You know how I know it was worth $9 million? Somebody paid $9 million for it. You want to know what you are worth? You are worth the blood of the Son of God Himself. Paul tells us you were bought at a price. And so in the world, when the accusers try to tell you you're not worth something, you point them to the cross. Because it is in the cross that you were bought at a high price. And that alone is where your worth ought to be rooted. And the fourth and final thing is this ought to lead us to be people of worship. Worship is not just singing, but it is part of singing. And if you stand up after hearing what I've just preached, and you kind of sing like this with your hands in your pocket, I don't think you understand. Like when I see a football game and something exciting happens, nobody has to tell me to throw my hands in the air and yell. It's a reaction to what I've just seen. And I'm an Oklahoma State fan, so usually it's a bad reaction. But in those moments where it goes right, it's worship, man. That's awesome. When you hear what Jesus Christ has done for you, when you think of what Jesus Christ has done for you, we shouldn't have to encourage you to be excited about it. It should just come out of you if you really understand it. And it's not just singing, it's all of life. What if every day we reminded ourselves of what He has done for us? Would we not be people who spent our money a little bit different? Would we not be people who treated outcasts a little bit different? In all things, you wouldn't have to be told to do something. You would just do it. You know, Jesus, have all my money. I don't even want it compared to what you have given me. I want to be like that, friends. I want this doctrine that's right here to seep so far down here that that person that I'm up here on this stage is the person you see all the time. It's so much easier for me to talk about it with a microphone, but i got to take this off and walk amongst you. And the world accuses, and the world tells me I'm not these things, and I need to be reminded often so that I can be this type of worshiper in all of life. Let me pray for us, and we're going to stand, and we're going to sing, and you better sing. Father, thank you so much for the way that you have loved us. God, the, the great question is how can the just God also be the justifier of the sinners? You loved us, and yet we sinned against you. And yet, Lord, what you do is you make a way. Your justice is fully carried out on the cross of Jesus. But God, your mercy and your love is also seen there as you call your children home. Lord, I'm grateful that I am no longer in myself. I no longer represent myself before you. 
I, I no longer have to worry about what I do and don't do right before you because you have done it for me in Christ Jesus. Lord Jesus, I love you and I thank you for what you've done. And friends, if you would take about 20 seconds and just say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to do what you've called us to do. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing together. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.